This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, Reviews Director at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Rose Fox this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from the PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Garth Greenwell discusses his novel, What Belongs to You. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot takes a look at the year 2015 in numbers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, uh, in the nonfiction, we have a... Quite a bit of these, uh, uh, what we would have assumed were, were going to be on the list after New Year's. A lot of the self-improvement, both physical, spiritual, and pretty much everything else. So one of the big books is The Whole 30, The 30-Day Guide to Total Health and Food Freedom by Dallas Hartwig and Melissa Hartwig. And here uh, in our review, they say that uh, the Hartwigs are certified sports nutritionists and the creators of the Whole 30 program. Their new book offers step-by-step guidance to help readers implement the Whole 30 plan and and that's at number 11. That's our uh, highest debut on nonfiction. So it uh, looks like a lot of people are uh, kind of digging into that. Next, we have Fresh Start by Joel Austin. And then at number 14, The Shred Power Cleanse by Ian K. Smith. And Ian K. Smith is a physician, presents a two-week nutrient-rich cleanse designed to promote general health. We say in a review, though some text blocks are unnecessarily repeated throughout the book, fitness enthusiasts will appreciate this clear-cut and user-friendly program. So this is from our review of the book of The Shred Power Cleanse. And finally, we have, uh, just going down a little bit further, we have The Fat-Burning Machine. The 12-Week Diet, and um, this is by Mike Burland and Carol Bernhardt, and uh, I think that's uh, what we have basically on our nonfiction. All the debuts are, like I said, health and trying to uh, better yourself in the new year. What do you think? Anything good on the uh, fiction list or anything else you have there? Well, since the nonfiction is about losing weight, decluttering, and getting healthy, um, I'm going to turn to the fiction. Good. Uh, It's the usual suspects. Girl on the train just keeps going on like a runaway train. And there's the usual Grisham and Patterson and Stephen King and Vince Flynn. But what's heartening to see is further down the list, you have... uh, Literary fiction that's still doing well. John Irving has a new book out that's doing well. Isabel Allende's book is doing well. And Hanya Yanagihara, whose book right. has been a sensation, she's on the bestseller list. So oh, fantastic. It's, it's good to see this. It, it, nice. it really is. It really is. I mean, I, and that's one of the things, I mean, because you're right. You start off the list with these, with the usual suspects, the Grishams or who, whoever has a book out. But then uh, some of the literary stuff, when, when you see them appear on the best-selling books, that means it's reaching to a you know, larger general audience. So it's nice to, nice yeah. to hear. I thought this was going to be a little bit more, uh, we'd see a little more health books. We only have four debut on the uh, list but we'll see if there's any more cookbooks next week we'll see how it goes 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Louise Normalino, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Garth Greenwell tells us about his novel, What Belongs to You. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Gaston Doran. I'm the author of Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages, and I'm very happy to be on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Garth Greenwell on the line. His new debut novel is What Belongs to You. Hi, Garth. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So your novel is set in Bulgaria. Tell us a little bit about it. So, yeah, it's um, the story of an American high school teacher living in Bulgaria and a relationship that he has with a young Bulgarian man whom he meets in a bathroom beneath the National Palace of Culture in Sofia and pays for sex. Wow. So so this this high school uh, teacher is unnamed. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this this teacher and maybe why he's he's left without a name in the novel. Yeah, so I mean, names are something I thought a lot about um, when I was working on the book and the decision to leave the not only the narrator but also almost every other character in the novel without a without a name. Um, the only character in the book who has a name is this young Bulgarian man. And even his name, we don't we don't get his whole name. He's called Mitko, which is a nickname. It's the short form of Demeter. So it's like the American Mike. And it's the most common Bulgarian male name. And his last name is, is only identified by an initial. And I, I wanted him to be the only named character because that seems to me a, a position of both kind of privilege, like he's in a spotlight kind of Um and sort of more foregrounded than the other characters in the novel. But it's also, I think, a position of vulnerability, like a spotlight. Um, he's also the character who's most exposed. And you know, the narrator being without a name, I mean, in part, the, the book as a whole, I think, you know, tries to occupy a space that hints at or teases sort of the idea of being autobiographical. All of the sort of fact-checkable information we we find out about the narrator um all of those things are are facts that he shares with me and um sort of details of of my life and so i was interested in the novel in sort of occupying this kind of middle space where the novel is fiction um but is sort of constantly hinting at the possibility of being nonfiction. well i have to tell you something garth um and I'm sure this was unconscious, but many Eastern European novels have unnamed narrators in unnamed countries. Were you aware of that? Have you read a lot of that literature? Yeah, I mean, you know, that um, that sort of tradition is is pretty important to, to me. And, and I hope that the book um, I hope that the book is in conversation with some of those writers. Yeah. How good is your Bulgarian? I was very impressed. <laughs> um, you know, it. Uh, I was. I lived there for four years, and um, it was really. I worked really hard to try to learn the language. It was. A, it was a hard language for me to learn. I'd never studied a Slavic language before, and um, it was important to me to be able to communicate with the people where I was, uh, with, with people you know, living where I was living, and. Um, 
And so it got pretty, it got actually, I mean, pretty good, good enough that, that, um, you know, I had relationships that were entirely in Bulgarian with people who didn't speak English and, um, it got good enough that, that people were sort of surprised that there was a foreigner who, who spoke the language that well. And it was, um, I mean, that was really important to my time in Bulgaria because, you know, I spent a lot of time, um, with sort of marginalized communities and especially with LGBT communities and um, LGBT youth communities and with a lot of people who didn't have access to the kind of education that would equip them with English. And so, you know, having the language allowed me to have a, a much richer experience in Bulgaria than I would have otherwise. Well, you really um, evoke the feeling of the country and with the characters and with the, the insert of the language. It's really beautiful, beautiful book. I'm going to let Mark talk now. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So, so tell me about the, tell us about the National Palace of Culture in, in Sofia. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a real place and it's a very famous sort of cruising place in, in Sofia, Bulgaria. And, you know, I think the, the spark of the novel for me came from this kind of bizarre vertiginous disorienting sensation I had repeatedly when I was there, which was of, of being in a place that seemed entirely foreign to me. I'd never been to Eastern Europe. When I arrived, I barely spoke the language. I had kind of, you know, survival Bulgarian. So I was constantly struggling to communicate. I was constantly misreading cultural cues and making all sorts of mistakes. And then one day in my first few weeks, um, uh, in the city when I was just exploring the city with a friend and we just, we needed a bathroom. We happened to be at the national palace of culture. And I, I went to this place where the novel begins and immediately as I entered the place, I knew what it was and I knew what was happening there. And I was in a place that was suddenly legible to me and I could communicate. I understood the codes by which people were understanding each other. And this, you know, that sense of kind of foreignness and then, familiarity happened again and again in Bulgaria when I was talking to gay people and queer people in Sofia. And I kept finding myself listening to people tell me stories or talk about their lives in a way that reminded me of the, the first gay men I met when I was, you know, cruising these kinds of places, bathrooms and parks in Kentucky in the early 90s when I was 14, 15, 16. And that experience of sort of you know, foreignness and homecoming at once um, kind of defined my my time in Bulgaria. And I think that really is, that was what I wanted to try to figure out in writing this book. Is it difficult to be gay in Bulgaria? I think it's really difficult to be gay in Bulgaria. And, and you know, I had a real, um, I mean, my experience of being gay in Bulgaria was entirely different from the experience of a Bulgarian a gay person in Bulgaria, um, because my foreignness gave me all sorts of privilege. Right. You know, but that, but I taught Bulgarian kids. Um, the, I taught at a school called the American College of Sofia, um, which is a high school, and its mission is to educate Bulgarian kids who come from all over the country um, to to sort of be in this kind of elite school. And I was the only openly gay. Um, adult in the school community, which meant that a lot of kids came to talk to me about their sexuality. And again, that was an experience of feeling like, you know, things that these kids were saying to me um, 
reminded me again and again of my own experience of being gay, you know, being gay, a gay 14 year old in Kentucky in the early 90s with one big difference, which was that, you know, when I was 15 or 16, I found James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room and I found Edmund White's A Boy's Own Story. And so even though the only thing that I ever heard from people around me, from my family, from my community about gay people was you know, a kind of narrative that stripped my life of dignity. Those books gave my life dignity. They gave me a different vision of what it could mean to be a queer person. In Bulgaria, um, that doesn't exist. There are no representations of Bulgarian queer lives in Bulgarian, in the language, that represent those lives with anything like dignity. And that was so, you know, it made me realize how important that literature was for me and how important it is. I think that these stories, uh, stories of queer lives in places like Bulgaria, which are not being told, which have never been told, how important it is that a space in literature open up for those lives. Um, you know, because it did, it, it, those books saved my life mm -hmm. when I was a gay kid in Kentucky. Can I ask how you ended up in Bulgaria and did you ever think you'd get a book out of it? So, um, well, you know, I, I didn't think that I would end up in Bulgaria and it was kind of a, a convoluted path that took me there. The decision that I made was in 2006 to leave a PhD program. I was doing a, a PhD in literature and I was three years into it. Um, and I realized that I didn't want an academic life. I didn't want to be a professor. Um, and so I started, I took a job teaching high school in Ann Arbor. Um, and I didn't think that that was going to be something I would do for very long. But I, I really had this experience of falling in love with these high school students. Um, and I spent three years in Ann Arbor, realized I wasn't going to go back to finish my PhD. I was on leave, but I realized that I really wasn't ever going to finish it. Um, but I also didn't want to stay in Ann Arbor, and I'd always wanted to, to go abroad. I had never spent any time abroad. And so I signed up with an agency that places teachers in high schools uh, internationally. And um, you know, I ended up getting two job offers. And one was for a very fancy, swank Swiss boarding school in the Alps, <laughs> where, you know, where I would have made a lot more money um, and would have taught, you know, just – very, very, very rich kids. And the other one was this school, the American College of Sofia in Bulgaria. And I mean, before finding that job, I, I don't think I could have pointed to Bulgaria on a map. But when I started, it's a fascinating place. It was founded in 1865, the school. It claims to be the oldest American educational institution outside of America, founded by missionaries in 1865, which just blows my mind. Like, what were they doing there you know, at the end of the Civil War? Um, and it's a school, as I say, its mission has always been to educate the most talented Bulgarian kids who come from all over the country. And so immediately I just thought, well, that's going to be the much more interesting experience. Um, and, you know, I, when I went to Bulgaria, I had never written fiction. I, I, I had my all of my training to that point had been in poetry as both a writer and a scholar. And it was something about moving to that place. Um, and and I, this is I don't understand why this happened, but something about moving moving to that place made me a fiction writer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. 
PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Garth Greenwell, the author of What Belongs to You. So going back to the book, um, tell us about the relationship with with this high school teacher and Mitko, uh, who, who comes from Varna, as you say, on the Black Sea. Tell us a little bit about this relationship. Yeah, so it's a relationship that really kind of takes the narrator by storm. I mean, he he meets this guy um, in this bathroom, and um, he's immediately drawn to him. He's a beautiful man and, and sort of has this charisma. And the narrator, he tells us that he's never paid anyone for sex before. Um, this is the first time that he's done that. And I think, you know, in the beginning of the novel, it seems like this is just going to be a transaction, that there's sort of nothing simpler, sort of the exchange of money for sex, and then it's over. Um, But but the narrator finds himself kind of caught by Mitko, and he keeps going back and sort of seeking out this guy, and then he brings the guy into his home. And their relationship becomes something that's not just a transaction. It becomes something messy in the way that human relationships are always messy. And I think you know, what what interested me uh, in, in, in exploring this was thinking about how, I mean, there's no question that this relationship is limited, formed, shaped, deformed by the circumstance with which it starts, which is this trans- transaction of sex work, of prostitution. And part of what part of the sort of journey the narrator undergoes over the course of the book is understanding the ways in which that shapes and forms and limits and deforms their relationship. But it's also true that at every moment in their relationship with each other, these two people are, are, are human beings. I mean, they remain sort of fully human at every moment. And there are moments where the interaction between them seems full of promise. I mean, seems like it overflows the bounds of, of, you know, any kind of transaction. And that was what I was really interested in exploring sort of those moments, how this, how these two human beings interact with each other and how complicated that relationship is and is bound up with questions of, you know, need and privilege and desire and exploitation and also friendship and also empathy and, you know, a, a desire to to connect with someone on a sort of deeply human level. I was really touched by the um, interaction of the narrator with the woman in the clinic. I thought that was quite amazing the way it was developed. I don't want to spoil anything, but how it went from one sensibility to another, how it went from the um, using the personal pronoun to the formal pronoun. I think it was... Um, right. Where did that come from? And, and tell us a little bit about this scene for, for those of us who haven't read it. Right. So, so the novel is, um, it's in three parts. And the, the main narrative is, as I say, this relationship between the narrator and 
Mitko. But there, that, that narrative is told in two parts, um, and there's a space of a, there's a gap of a couple of years between them. And when the, when Mitko comes back into the narrator's life, he 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 shows up again and he tells him that he's sick, that he's been infected with uh, syphilis. Mm-hmm. And tells the narrator he's found out that he's had this illness for a long time and the narrator has to go and get checked. So that's sort of what sends the narrator into this, you know, horrifying kind of bureaucracy of public medicine in Bulgaria. Um, So he, he goes into this world and he has to interact with doctors and with nurses, um, and yeah, I wanted to sort of, you know, I, I hope that the, the book does give as accurate a, a portrayal of Bulgaria as, as I'm capable of. I mean, it's uh, the, the, there's no question that the country is really the beginning and the ending of the book. Um, and it's a place that I love a lot. And it's also a place that is really hard. And it's a place where there is this kind of socialist bureaucracy that has never completely fallen away. And that is full of people who were shaped by that socialist bureaucracy. And so in those scenes in the medical clinics, I mean, I wanted to show how dehumanizing that bureaucracy is um, and how hard it is to do, you know, very simple everyday things within that bureaucracy. And yet how, again, I mean, as with the relationship between the narrator and Nico, I mean, how people remain human beings, you know, regardless of that context. And so I wanted to show how even this bureaucracy that can seem very dehumanizing and colorless and bland is actually a place where there is, you know, all of the richness of, of our common humanity. So, you know, I wanted to show these, how the narrator interacts with these nurses and how he feels, you know, in this context of a deeply homophobic place, um, where there's a lot of stigma, like having an STI. Um, and, you know, he wants, I, I wanted to show the sort of range of interactions he can have with the people who, who live in that system. Uh, at one point in the book, the, this, this, this uh, high school teacher goes back uh, to the States, back to this, this town where he grew up in the South. Let's talk about that of outcasts. You had mentioned this a little bit before about those um, – gay uh, men and women who live in uh, Sofia. What about the the feeling of an outcast for someone who's from the South, but then goes to, as, as, as you had said, to Bulgaria? Right. I mean, you know, and I, I mean, again, I think that that was really the sort of familiar part of, of, of the experience of being there for me and, and, you know, for the narrator as well, that, I mean, in some ways, the, the world he enters into beneath the National Palace of Culture is a world that he knows really deeply. And, you know, there's a way in which that middle section of the book, which is about the narrator's childhood and the right. States and Kentucky, I, you know, I wrote that, um, well, I should say, when I finished the first section of the of the novel, I, I thought that I was done. I mean, I, I didn't think that I was writing a novel. I thought I had just written kind of a long short story or a novella um, and that that was it. And then I found myself um, in, in, in a way that that's unique in my writing life. This has never happened before or since. I was just sort of seized by this voice of the second section 
and found myself, you know, just kind of trying to follow and notate that voice, which is a voice that's kind of very emotional voice, a very kind of enraged voice. And I found myself, you know, writing about this. It it, it really wasn't until I was about halfway through that section that I realized what it was doing was trying to understand the narrator of, of Mitko, of the first section, trying to understand how he became the person he is, who is, you know, someone who at one and the same time is sort of constantly reaching out to connect with other people and sort of constantly, at one point he says, you know, the whole bent of my nature is toward confession. Like he claims, you know, I'm telling you everything, I'm disclosing everything. And at the same time, I think, you know, he's an incredibly guarded person and is sort of hiding things both from the reader and from himself. And really, I think he sort of understands over the course of the book how difficult it is for him to allow the possibility of the kind of connection he longs for. And I think that, you know, that middle section and exploring, you know, what it is to grow up as a queer person in a place where the only story told about your life is that it has no value. And I mean, what the ramifications of that are. And that, you know, in some way, it's precisely this relationship with Mitko, precisely being in this place that is far enough away from his home that he can think about it. You know, it kind of allows him the distance, but also plunges him back in a world that reminds us, reminds him of his childhood. I mean, that's what requires that, that, I think, very angry middle section where he tries to reckon with his upbringing and, and especially with his relationship with his father. Well, there's a lot of hardness, you know, this this young boy living on the street and, and wanting the money and, and the way the narrator feels about this, how he's attracted to him, but yet he's upset by him and, and really doesn't... He wants it to be something, maybe it's not. It's it's really well done. But there's also these moments of tenderness, like when the narrator's mother comes, or there's that young boy on the train that everyone's reacting to who's with his grandmother in Bulgaria. I mean, you've, you've really touched the range of human emotions. Oh, that's, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Thank you. I mean, I, you know, and again, I think that's, you know, that's tied up with the place. Um, I mean, Bulgaria is at once the most beautiful place I've ever been and also in some ways the ugliest, you know. And it's a place where, um, I mean, obviously, like any place, there's, there's, you know, extraordinary human warmth. And then there's also, as I say, there's a way in which you can see that even the most intimate structures of human life have been, you know, deformed by this socialist legacy. And... You know, I hope that the book, I mean, I, I, it's very gratifying to hear you say that. I hope that, that the book can, can be true to, to, to both of those things or to that whole range of, of possibility, both in this place, Bulgaria, and then also in the narrator himself. So uh, what are you working on now? Well, so right now, so um, I'm working on a collection of stories that they are it's kind of very much kind of fit into the interstices of the novel um so it's you know it's i I feel very much like i'm 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 still sort of inhabiting the world of the of the novel in the third section of the book 
there's a character who's important but doesn't show up a lot, who's just identified by his initial R, who is um, the, the, the narrator's boyfriend. And, and the narrator has sort of found his way to this more conventional relationship um, in the third section of the book. And But we don't really learn a lot about their relationship. And in the stories that I'm working on, a lot of them, that character R is a sort of is a, is a central character. And so it's exploring the relationship between the two of them. Um, so stories, I'm working on a collection of stories that's, that's again, based in Bulgaria. And then I'm, I've started something else, um, that I'm not sure what it is, but is, is set in the States. So it's, um, maybe the sort of next book on the, on the horizon, um, that is again, like about queer communities and queer lives, um, but now in the American South. Well, you seem to have, uh, I mean, you were talking about mining this book for, for other material or, or having something grow out of it. And this book itself, if I'm not mistaken, grew out of a novella called Mitko, which, which won the 2010 Miami University Press Prize and which was also a finalist for the Edmund White Award and the Lambda Award. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I said, that was the, the first piece of fiction I had ever written. And, um, when I submitted it to that, to the, the contest, I, which I did because a, a writer friend of mine, Kyle Miner suggested that I do, I had this thing, I didn't know what to do with it. And he suggested I submit to that Miami university press contest. I'm so glad I did. Um, but I'm also glad that I, I realized, um, before, thank goodness before i signed the contract i realized that the book was part that 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 miko the first section was part of something bigger and so um but it is true that i mean to this point kind of everything i've written and that's true of the poems i wrote before i started writing fiction as well i mean it does kind of feel like so far like kind of one project um which is something that you know i I like writers who kind of do that who sort of explore a world across multiple books like i think of you know zabald i think does that or javier marias is someone who does that um and that appeals to me i mean it i i do think as a writer what interests me is not so much invention as i mean as you say sort of mining as instead um you know actually trying to look as hard as you possibly can at what's in front of you and sort of discovering things through depth. So the idea of sort of, I mean, it, it does seem to me that, you know, even after finishing the novel, there were a lot of things about the world of the novel that, that there wasn't room for within that book. Um, and so I do, I mean, it does seem like, like there's a lot of sort of richness in that place. And then, and in the experiences I had there still to be mined. Well, we look forward to uh, whatever it is that comes out of this novel. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> We've been talking with Garth Greenwell. You can find his book, What Belongs to You, in stores right now. Garth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Louise Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks back at the year 2015. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, 
And I'm Louise Ermolino, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today our favorite, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us about the year 2015 in numbers. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hey, Mark. Hi, Louisa. Nice to see you. Hi, Jim. <laughs> so uh, here we are, the second week of uh, January, uh, the new year. Um, how did 2015 look? Actually, it uh, finished very well. Good. Um, you know, the, one of the, the high points is that print sales, which has been under pressure since the ebook revolution, uh, you know, 2010, uh, were up again. Mm-hmm. Um, they were up about almost 3%. In 2014, they were up also, but not quite as much. So it seems like, um, you know, fears of print books uh, going away, drying up and dying, and, you know, the onslaught of ebooks has gone away. And, and you know that's a that's a relief to pretty much everybody in the publishing industry. So you said it ended pretty well. Was was uh, was were publishers trying to catch up towards the end of the year, or just was was it pretty solid throughout? Uh, ever since the summer, especially on the print side, if you want to focus on that for a second. Sure. Um, what really happened was we had Go Set a Watchman. Right. We had the Gray Book from E. L. James and. Um, the girl on the train also were doing very well. Right. So, and they really drove uh, print sales. And one thing um, that was unique in 2015 that hadn't been true in a while is sales of fiction went up in print. Well, those books you just mentioned were all all novels that that had uh, gone up. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, because we had in, in 2014, there wasn't one novel that sold a million copies, according to BookScan, you right. know, which tracks about 80% of sales. But uh, last year, in 2015, Ghost of the Watchmen, Gray, um, Go, uh, Girl on the Train, they all sold over a million. So that was, um, you know, that was a nice impressive. bonus, and that really did help uh, give the whole fiction segment a nice boost in print, because, you know, fiction has certainly been impacted by the e-books right. the most. And for better or worse, I mean... Ebooks are a good thing for romance readers and mm-hmm. for mystery readers and, and those and those types of people, but it, you know it did put pressure on the print. Right. Yeah. So uh, the the what happened in the year you know for earlier in that year? I mean, we didn't see too many big books come out. So right, and I think that almost did carry through to the end of the year. We were just right. finishing up our. Um, to talk to uh, we talked to about twenty twenty five uh, independent booksellers, and the consensus was there really wasn 't you know a must have book of the year right um, but there was a must have category mark and Lisa and i 'm sure you guys can figure out what it was I, do i do i 'm going to just venture out there coloring books adult coloring oh my <laughs> gosh, how did I know <laughs> adult coloring books uh, you know really blew the doors off uh, sales at almost every uh, independent we talked to and it wasn't one that really shot up the bestseller list uh, because they were scattered throughout although certainly Joanna Basford's uh, right. titles including uh, the newest ones did very well mm-hmm. but they they had a lot of competition from books that have been out there for uh, you know for a matter of months and right. it's it was really unbelievable and I imagine sales probably picked up right before the holidays as, as you know, those things seem to make great gift books as well. Exactly. Great gift books. I mean, we're doing another feature in a couple of weeks on gift books, which 
was trying to exclude dull coloring books, but that's all publishers wanted to talk about. Right. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a phenomenon. I mean, one bookseller say, you know, they sold 900 crayon, cop, you know, packages right. of crayons in, in the last couple of weeks. And oh, right. usually they sell 10. So it, it, oh. it came, came through the whole lot, all sidelines, that sort of stuff. Right. So this is another way for bookstores, especially independent booksellers, to, to, make, to make money to carry the, the crayons or the colored pencils. Right. A lot of sidelines. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we keep thinking it's got to have to slow down sometime. But right now, the publishers are really going home on it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, really good for the publishers and and obviously for independent booksellers because I, this is something that I'm assuming is kind of negligible. The numbers are negligible in uh, as ebooks. <laughs> so. Negligible is a kind term. <laughs> but you know, if you want to talk yeah. a little bit about format, which may not yeah. be everybody's cup of tea, but Let's do it. it did lead to uh, trade paperback having a really good year last year because I mean, virtually every. Um, Every adult coloring book comes in the trade paperback format, you know, and those sales in there were up about 7% last year. Right. So that's, you know, that's a really a healthy gain. We haven't seen that type of gain in, in a while. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive then. Is this an international phenomenon or just American? You know, it's, some of it started internationally. Some of it started in France and then came over here. But by all accounts, it's been the biggest in the United States. Um, Joanna Bassford herself, though, is... You know English. Um, so it's over there in England, um, so I assume it's it's done pretty well over there. And in fact, her first two titles were published by uh, a UK printer, Lawrence King, and distributed here by their American distributor. Um, you know, it did so well that Penguin picked her up for her her newest one, Lost Ocean, which mm-hmm. came out uh, over the holidays. Are there any indication of how some of the uh, more, you know, more not you know, generic uh, genre nonfiction books. It maybe cookbooks or health books or anything over the year. Um, cookbooks seem to do pretty well. Um, it's everything is skewed though because the way the industry measures things, and this is really inside publishing. There was no specific category for adult coloring books. Mm. So if you look at adult nonfiction. Art and architecture books are up like sixty percent. Then you go and look at what's oh, selling there. Right. One adult coloring book after another right, one, and right. then you look in self help because, as we know, adult coloring books help relieve stress. <laughs> right. um, that sales are up about forty percent, and yeah. again, it's mostly driven by adult coloring books. Yeah. So you know, it did kind of impact in that respect across you know a lot of different areas. As you were talking with publishers, reflecting on the year, were were they seeing anything other than the coloring books that seemed to be a, a trend going forth that they they are hoping to bank on to continue that momentum into the new year? What they're really banking on is Barnes and Noble staying in business. Um, so we got some good news on that today, where they reported that their comparable store sales. Or the sales, you know, for stores that have been open at least a year, uh, were up, um, right. uh, roughly one percent, give or take. Right. Um, so that was welcome news because Barnes and Noble had a really bad uh, second quarter right before the holidays kicked in. So, you know, without Barnes and Noble, six hundred and forty stores or so, the whole industry would be in trouble. So it right. was a good sign to see that they seem to do pretty well. Um, you know, over the holidays, you know, one percent may not seem like much, but in this day and age, it's it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. And how were independents? How did independents fare? You know, it's been it's been a 
you know, renaissance for book independent yeah. booksellers, and it seemed to continue. Um, the stores we just finished talking to, most of them were all up. Um, very optimistic about about the future. Um, one thing that everybody's keeping an eye on is, and I, I think we saw this across all kinds of retail, was more and more sales moving to online. And it's not just mm. big, bad Amazon doing it. Well, it is. <laughs> but right. um, it's just more shoppers are shopping online. Right. So uh, that's something all booksellers are going to have to, you know, take account of in terms of even Barnes & Noble. One of Barnes & Noble's problems has been that BNN.com has been not good. Uh, right, exactly. It's been a, a strong second to uh, a very, <laughs> no, very distant second. No, to, distant second <laughs> I'm sorry, distant <laughs> second to, to Amazon, yeah. And, they, and you know, they revamped it last year, and over the summer they had more than expected glitches with it. Yeah. And so sales went down online. I don't know how it's possible for mm. online sales to go down, but they did. Um, but they had made some improvements over it in November and December, and they said things were better. Um, so that's a good sign. Yeah. Um, but independents also are not concerned, but they're certainly aware that you know more and more people are shopping online. And while some independents or most independents certainly have online capabilities, most books book buyers still go to Amazon when they right. want to buy something yeah. online. Yeah, and kind of bundle it with other shopping, uh, especially with the Amazon Prime. It's just easier to do that. But I noticed, like, even my local bookstore in, in Montclair has a pretty strong online. I mean, you could, uh, they'll order something and you'll get it within a couple of days, uh, which which is really good. And they've been really active doing that. And I remember of the holidays, I went there and it was long lines. So I was really happy to see that. <laughs> right. I was really happy to see that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's something yeah. they're all definitely, you know, I think it's moved top of mind now. Now they sort of got their physical right. spaces filled, you know, fixed, and things are doing pretty well. You can't rest. Yeah. So, any other highlights for 2015 you want to? Uh, I know, I think, you know, it was, it was overall a good year. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of tranquil, actually. I mean, the last few years, uh, you. 2014, we had the whole Amazon Hachette battle. Right. And the year before that, we had uh, the end of the Apple price fixing, ebook price fixing case. So this year, um, and we're watching uh, Go Set a Wall. Go set a watchman and, right. and seeing how it would do. And, yeah. you know, so that's, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's nice when uh, all the wheels of publishing are working together and not against each other and <laughs> just, just putting stuff out there. Yeah, there is, uh, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you so much again. Thank you, Jim. Anytime. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Louisa Romolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Frances Morales, author of Love in Lowercase. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on book selling and the nuts and bolts of book publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 